Hello everyone and welcome to the 14th episode of the Connectivity Podcast. I'm Mattias Fridström and I've spent the last 25 years inside the connectivity community. In this pod, we invite guests to deep dive into one or many subjects to simply learn more about connectivity. And in this 14th episode, I'm extremely happy to have Lisa Lorentzin back. She's from Cscaler, so let's continue the conversation now. One of the coming new technologies out there is, of course, 5G. Everyone talks 5G. Do you think 5G will have a major impact on how we view security for, from a design point of view or from an enterprise point of view? Will that change the world again? I think it's not going to be a tectonic shift the way that cloud-enabled services has been. I think it's going to be more of an acceleration the way that the pandemic accelerated existing trends. And the reason I say that is we already have users accessing via data networks. 5G just makes those data networks faster and more convenient. So we're not introducing a new paradigm. We're accelerating the shift that's already underway. I think that 5G is going to make these modern approaches to application access and modern approaches to zero trust more important. And I think one of the things 5G is going to do is it's going to accelerate the recognition that we don't really need a corporate network anymore. And this is a particularly relevant when we start to look beyond user-driven use cases. So everything I've talked about so far, I've been really focused on the user. User experience, user requesting a resource, user authorization. But the principles of zero trust don't stop there. We also need to control machine-to-machine traffic, applications talking to each other, backend workloads. And this could be two applications in different cloud providers. It could be applications in a data center talking to applications in the cloud. It could be Internet of Things. It could be operational technology or industrial Internet of Things. So more and more, we're going to see cases where we want this visibility and control for server-to-server use cases, for machine-to-machine use cases. And I think 5G is going to accelerate that by providing us better connectivity, especially for widely distributed industrial control systems use cases. That is, to me, a much harder challenge to address because industrial control systems environments tend to be populated with legacy applications and legacy hardware that expects to be on a dedicated network, that expects to be on a private network And we're starting now to see more of these smart grids and information that's getting exposed to an internet transit because we want just-in-time visibility, we want telemetry, we want more control from remote locations rather than having to roll a truck every time something goes down. So I think that 5G is going to drive the need for a modernization of how we access and protect these industrial control system and these operational technology environments. But at the same time, those environments have security considerations and considerations that go beyond security, reliability and safety considerations that enterprise security doesn't. So I think that's one of the most interesting areas where zero trust principles are extending into those use cases. And we need to figure out how to do that in a way that fits with the requirements of those environments. All right. That's interesting. 
Uh, one of the things I think mostly about is, of course, connectivity. That's what we live on here in our company and so on. Uh, your services are obviously in the cloud, so connectivity for you is important. What do you feel in general about, you know, when when you talk to your clients and, and talk to them, you know, do they ever think about how they're connected to the cloud, how that works? Or are people just assuming the cloud is there and, yeah, it's just there? I think it depends on who you talk to. You know, if you talk to an application owner or a business stakeholder, they don't want to know that. That's plumbing. Mm. But if you start to talk to DevOps, DevSecOps teams, if you start to talk to the application builders, and if you talk to the enterprise security architects who are facing the need to extend their security model across not just a cloud environment, but multiple cloud environments, this is where cloud plumbing becomes more important. What is your topology? How are you deploying in that topology? Are you leveraging infrastructure as code? Are you connecting via anything from something like a direct connect or an express route from the data center to the cloud? And this extends back to campus environments, campus and branch. Are we still stuck on more, frankly, legacy MPLS deployments, private dedicated networks that really aren't fit for purpose anymore, that it might make more sense to move to direct to internet, local breakout. So now you are thinking about connectivity to the cloud because we're thinking about routing traffic. I think that there are teams of people whose job it is to understand connectivity to and through the cloud. But I think the vast majority of enterprise decision makers don't want to have to think about that and would prefer a solution that just works regardless of how that connectivity fits. Do you get a lot of questions from your clients about where your clouds are? Yes, absolutely. Do you tell them? We actually have a website that shows you the location of our Zscaler data centers, mm. geographic locations, and the status of those cloud nodes. Mm. When our architects get involved with solution design, they work with organizations to figure out how best to design connectivity to our cloud. And I was mentioning that ZPA grew 12x in four weeks. We are cloud native ourselves. We could not have absorbed that traffic with static data centers. We run some of our infrastructure in AWS and Azure so that we have the expansibility of the cloud as well. I think that more and more entities. They don't want to know exactly the details. What they want is the confidence that they can leverage the power of our cloud. But they also want to know that our cloud can expand and flex to meet their needs. And I think that's where having the visibility that you get on trust.zscaler.com to where our compute resources exist, what regions of the world, what parts of the, a cloud-based versus data center hosted, all of that we are very transparent about so that organizations can become as familiar with that as they wish to be. And I guess that kind of opens the door for them to ask, could you be in this data center as well? This is much closer to where we are and so on. So I guess you will have those type of requests as well. Absolutely. And that's where we work with our customers to figure out, you know, if you've got a massive campus that needs to be connected, 
you're not just going to want to be in one Zscaler data center. You know, generally you're going to want a tunnel that's going to send your outbound traffic to a primary data center and a backup tunnel in case there is any need to fail over. You've got multiple sites in your environment. So we do that kind of solution design to ensure redundant paths and full resiliency for the interconnect between the customer and our cloud to the same extent that we have it within our backbone and our, of our cloud. Yeah. Uh, obviously, one of the things that's most dear to our hearts here in Tilakeri is obviously the public internet, because that's what we are a, a big portion of, uh, a big part of their ecosystem. How much do you feel your customers are really aware of how the public internet works, really? Because I guess they are very dependent on that the public internet brings their traffic to the cloud, you know. Do you ever talk to clients about that? So I don't personally, because that's a little bit outside of my swim lane. <laughs> But I would say, again, there's a small group of people whose job it is to understand that. Mm -hmm. And everybody else in an organization doesn't need to, doesn't want to. No. I think that the only time a lot of the business stakeholders and even a lot of IT that isn't directly involved with network infrastructure, the only time they think about the internet is when you have a highly visible failure of a big piece of it. So yeah. There are people who would say that the Azure outage that happened a couple weeks ago was an internet failure. There are people who saw the DynDNS failures last year that took down DNS for parts of the East Coast of the U.S. Yep. for almost a day. You know, they, they would call that an internet failure. Mm. And in both cases, it wasn't what I would call the internet. I would call the internet the backbone, the routing, the transport. But You know, realistically, if you can't resolve DNS, it doesn't matter if the transport is there. And if you can't log into your email, it doesn't matter whether the, all of the underlying functions work. So I think that there is a monolithic conception of the public internet that really encompasses all of these functions. Big software as a service like Office 365, things like DNS and NTP that keep traffic moving smoothly. That really is layered on top of the transit and the transport and the backbone. Yeah, no, I think that's that's probably the general feeling around there. You know, public internet should just work. There's so much depending on it to work, uh, and and it should really work. And as you said, you know, it's a small group of people that feel it's interesting to understand where it is. The rest of the people just feel it should be there. The same as we hear in a lot of other places, you know. Uh, one thing I'm I'm curious about, you know, in, in security, uh, in, in parts of our industry, standards is is really important. Is that the same for security or, or are there a lot of standard discussions or does every company come with their own standards and, and how does that really work around security? Oh, gosh. So there's a great cartoon and the gist of it, the punchline is standards are wonderful. We have so many to choose from. <laughs> You know, you have 15 different standards for something, but you can't figure out how to actually do it with those 15. So let's make a 16th. Mm. And I did a lot of work with the IETF and with the Trusted Computing Group about a decade ago. Mm. The thing I learned from that is, number one, there are a lot of standards out there that don't get adopted because the area of interoperability they're targeting is not in the best interests of the companies that you would want to use it. So for example, security automation. We wrote a public open standard freely available for security automation. It never really got a lot of adoption. 
There were a variety of reasons, but one of the reasons is that the enterprise security companies didn't want interoperability. They wanted to be able to lock customers into their ecosystem. Yeah. So it's a case where the end user community, the customer community might have benefited from it, but the vendor community, it's very hard to get a man to understand something and his salary depends on him not understanding it. Mm-hmm. I think that was an Upton Sinclair quote, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I think that there are fundamental standards like IPsec, like TLS, like DNS Mm. that are the building blocks of connectivity. But I don't see a ton of new standards in the security space that are getting ubiquitous adoption. There's a lot of single-use standards. There's a lot of smaller targeted standards. You know, I think the biggest standard success over the last 10 years that I have seen from my very narrow perspective is SAML and SKIM. When I started working with identity, SAML didn't even exist yet. Mm-hmm. When SAML was first introduced, it was very rare. You know, We would try to ask customers, do you have a SAML ID- identity provider? Can we tie into that for authentication, scale- for scalability, for resilience? The answer was almost always no. Mm-hmm. And now today, You've got a proliferation of good tools. You've got Azure AD, Okta, Ping, SailPoint. The SAML 2.0 standard is pretty consistently implemented because that's another fun part. No matter how cleanly you write your standard, someone will find a way to interpret it in a way that you didn't expect. I learned that from doing interoperability testing for about five years in a standards body. Mm. So we've got a pretty reliable, cleanly implemented standard that is being extended with things like SKIM for dynamic communications. I think there are areas where standards are significant, but I also think there are always going to be areas where standardization isn't going to happen because it's not in the interest of the person selling you the product. Yeah, no, and I, I fully agree on that. And I see that the same in, in some other areas in telecom. So, And sometimes I also feel that there is no time for standards because someone has invented something new when, when the first standard is about to come out. So, Well, and then you see sort of what I consider to be failed standards. I mean, yeah. one dirty little secret is that not all standards are created equal. Not all standards accomplish what they intended to. I mean, and, and the two big examples of that are the security automation standards that I was part of developing. We were handicapped because we were writing specifications for XML over SOAP when JSON was just becoming a thing. And because of political reasons, we never did a binding to more modern you know, frameworks like that. So that's an example of a standard that failed not only because of politics, but also the result of those politics is that we weren't delivering what the world needed. And another example of that would be the Cloud Security Alliance. Yep. The software-defined perimeter specification was the, really the first take at a standard for zero trust, in my opinion. But the problem was that work group was founded by the heads of two companies that had implementations. So they standardized, they made the mistake, in my opinion, of standardizing not only the things that you must standardize, You need an agreement on what are the use cases, what are the assumptions, what are the requirements, what are the non-requirements, and then what are the interoperability points? What are the musts and the shoulds and the mays and the must-nots? That's a standard. What they did, though, was they standardized on a technology, on single packet authorization, and they baked 
one particular implementation into the standard itself. And I think that they ran into the same problem that we did in TCG all those years prior, which was when you hitch your wagon to one technology, you better hope that technology becomes the dominant technology, because if it doesn't, then the standard is not really usable in the real world. So standards can fail. Yeah. No. With the best of intentions. Yeah, no, really. That's a good and valuable lesson. Uh, I see that we're we're getting short on time here, but finally, what do you see in five years? You know, what problems do we still need to solve? You know, what what do you see in the foreseeable future about security, you know? Oh gosh. Well, I think that the most immediate challenge is going to be the hybrid workforce. Mm-hmm. How do we take our concepts of connectivity? and zero trust and modernizing our security delivery in the footsteps of our application modernization? How do we continue to build on the technologies that are available? And how do we continue to take advantage of the new flexibility that's enabled by these cloud-delivered solutions? So that's more of the 18 to 24, maybe 36 months. In the sort of five-year time horizon, I think, as you mentioned, 5G is going to really reshape the connectivity landscape. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is going to bring areas like OT, operational technology, or industrial control systems, closer and closer to the enterprise security space. So I think that extending our security principles to the IoT and OT environments in a way that works for the target applications is really hard and critical. And the other big evolution I see is that DevSecOps is going to continue to eat the world. The concept of infrastructure as code is incredibly powerful. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to shape the implementation of security in the same way that 5G is going to shape the delivery of connectivity. I think that it's going to become more and more important to have cloud-native solutions that are flexible enough to accommodate these new use cases rather than continuing to try to apply more traditional paradigms to a world that's really changed beyond their applicability. Mm. Yeah, you're absolutely right there. And I think that's a very good conclusion to this. I, I, I There are so many things I want to know more, but I, I know we're running out of time. So, so Lisa, thank you a lot for participating here. It was a pleasure to have you here on this podcast. It's wonderful to talk with you, and I'd be happy to continue the conversation anytime. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We will soon be back with a new guest, so please follow us on Twitter, ConnectivityPod, for updates. Stay tuned until next time.